What They Don't Tell You brings you real conversations about wealth management that real people have behind closed doors. We bring together clients and experts to talk about topics that go beyond the numbers. Little is known about the multi-generational losses Indigenous communities have faced, the prevention of wealth creation that resulted, and how government settlements are an attempt at reconciliation. In this episode, our Indigenous services team discusses the background of these settlements and the complexity of managing the money to rebuild today and set up future generations. Hi, thank you for joining us with this episode of What They Don't Tell You. My name is Jack Jamison. I'm proud to have been part of the Indigenous advisory practice since inception. And with me today is Lisa Caswell and Kane Big Canoe, who are both senior professionals with our team. As some introduction, I, I think it, you know, it probably goes without saying that, you know, significant new wealth has been created within the Indigenous community as a result of various settlements, resource sharing opportunities, and other revenue generating sources. We are very proud of the fact that our Indigenous advisory team works with approximately 50 Indigenous relationships from coast to coast to coast. This includes First Nations, Métis, and the Inuit peoples and their communities. We advise on over $2 billion in assets nationally to assist in the planning and implementation of customized wealth management strategies. Again, we want to thank you for joining us and and. And really, in an effort to provide some insight, I think, surrounding support within the Indigenous community, I'll be asking Lisa and Kane a few questions to help provide you a bit better understanding of the role and that we play relative to such support. And maybe the first question, and I think a lot of people often wondering, um, I look to Kane maybe and ask, what's the basis for the settlements and the specific claims and, and that we that we hear that the communities are getting, Kane? Sure. So... At a high level, um, these settlements are intended to compensate Indigenous communities for the many injustices that they've had to endure. Uh, There's two specific types of settlements that most people have heard of or are familiar with. And the first is a land claim settlement. And that one's pretty straightforward. Uh, It's for land that was either promised and never received or land that was taken and not returned. And the second uh, common settlement is a specific claim settlement and that one deals with other grievances against the crown and arises where Canada has essentially failed to meet obligations under treaties or other agreements. So I'll just give you two brief examples here just to provide a bit of context and um, have more of an understanding of of why these communities are getting these large settlements. So the, the first one would be the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point First Nation, which is a community in southern Ontario. So in 1942, uh, so during World War II, Canada essentially came in to the Stony Point um, portion of the reserve land and took that land from the community for military uh, training purposes. And families were basically just told to uh, to pack up and um, were displaced and relocated to the Kettle Point portion of that community. And this caused significant overcrowding and disrupted the lives of, of both those communities. And I think this is really easy to uh, to put yourself in their shoes and just imagine if uh, someone came into your community and, and basically uh, you were told to, to get out and um, you're going to be living over here now and uh, good luck, figure it out. So flash forward to 1945, uh, the war is over and one might expect that Canada would return the land to uh, Kettle and Stony Point First Nation, but that's not actually what happened. They continued using that land for another 50 years for military training purposes. 
And a settlement wasn't actually signed until recently in 2016, which marked 74 years after it was taken. Uh, the second example that I want to walk you guys through is um, it pertains to the Williams Treaty Settlement. And this one's technically a land settlement, but it has some aspects that would meet the definition of a specific claim. So in this case, seven separate nations were essentially told that they would maintain their hunting, fishing, and their harvesting rights on their traditional lands, even after they sold portions of these lands to the Crown. So this was their traditional land, but it was land that uh, they didn't actually inhabit. So they used these for these cultural activities, hunting and fishing. However, this wasn't honored in the treaty, and some legal experts actually believe that the Williams treaties were intentionally written so that they would be interpreted as extinguishing those harvesting rights outside of the actual reserve land, so that, that land that they were actually inhabiting. And by not being able to exercise harvesting rights, these community members were unable to provide for their families as they had before. And this led to increased dependence on the government. Uh, and just to tie these two examples together, I'll use the term uh, intergenerational wealth, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. And if you think about how families pass wealth onto the next generation, it's through assets, right? And primarily land. So by taking the land and the resources on those lands away from Indigenous people, uh, they were not able to accumulate wealth or participate in the economy to nearly the same extent, if at all, um, as the European settlers. Well, that's, that's thank you, Kane. Those are two uh, very powerful uh, examples. Um, Lisa, maybe, you know, the settlements, you know, a lot of communities go through and receive these settlements. So basically the money's arrived. What what happens then? Um, can you explain a bit of that to us? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thanks, Jack. And thanks, Kane, for those examples. So so the money comes, that's it. And and you know, many communities are are you know excited. It's it's a huge accomplishment to have, you know, achieved these settlements finally, in many cases after many, many decades. Um, so the money comes and we want to make sure, they want to make sure that the funds are used in the best way possible. Uh, to ensure the most benefit for for everybody. And from a high level, one of the most important things that comes into the equation at this point is how to balance the money that is very urgently needed today with the needs that we know and they know these communities recognize and put great value on what will be the needs of future generations. So we think of it a little bit like, and one of the analogies that we often give is growing a tree. So when you think of, of let's say, $100 million that comes into a community, we want that $100 million to be growing, but we also want money to be available from income of that portfolio to be spent on an ongoing basis every year. So if you think of it like a tree, as the tree gets bigger, in any given year, there's more fruit as time goes on. So really, that's sort of um, our objective here. And, and what are the specific things that are considered to, to address that. One of the things that, that we've learned is that every community is very different. And it's important that every solution or every strategy that, that is used from an investment and uh, planning perspective is customized to the needs of each community. So, um, and often this money is put into a trust. Um, most communities will determine at this point that they would um, use a trust as the legal vehicle because that legally protects the money. It, it can be created in a, in a, 
a method that is flexible, um, that can be changed um, to a certain extent over time, but also is um, legally distinct from the leadership of the day so that it is protected over long, long periods. Um, so there's a lot of community consultation that happens up front. We need to understand the culture. Um, we want to we 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 work to help support leadership through some of these discussions that go on. Um, there's a definitely a, a recognition that the ancestors had really suffered, um, you know, in prior decades because of of um, you know the the causes of these settlements. So they want to be sure that they're using it for good today. Um, so what they're thinking of maybe um, some examples of of spending needs might be elder care, um, youth um, spending for youth programs, language and culture. Um, we've seen cases where a community uses some of the funds to build an arena, um, support community members that are looking to start a business, healthcare, land purchase for for lands that that had been. Um, had been lost through the years to buy those back. Um, so that's kind of, that's sort of at a high level in the planning. But then of course, on the investment side, um, what we're going to be doing is is helping these communities develop an investment policy. Um, certainly the trust agreement will set the rules, but the translation of that into an investment strategy comes through the investment um, port, the, the investment policy statement. So again, we need to consider there what are the roles and the responsibilities of all of the different partners? Uh, what's the risk tolerance of the community? Recognizing that uh, there's going to be an ongoing reporting back to the community in terms of how these monies have been invested how they're performing, um, what are the return objectives to meet those, those annual income um, requirements that we're hoping to achieve. So that ties into a spending policy. Um, what are the specific guidelines that we want to put around the securities as they're invested so that they're kept safe, but yet uh, positioned so that we can create as much opportunity there as possible? Um, just one last thing I might mention is that what we're finding nowadays, most of our communities that we work with are interested very, um, very deeply in the social um, responsible investment guidelines. So that's issues around the environment, around governance, around social um, social justice that that they want to ensure are tied in to the way their money is invested. So basically, we're trying to put that money to work in the most prudent and cost effective way possible. Well, thank you, Lisa. And I, you know, we've heard from Kane, I guess, about some of the past wrongs and the settlements that are, you know, forthcoming and, and have been for compensation. We've heard from Lisa, I guess, just sort of, you know, what do we do with with such proceeds from there on? Maybe, Kane, can you explain maybe a number of examples, uh, a little bit about sort of the impact, you know, how this is the impact this is having um, across the country um, relative to these kind of uh, you know, when funds are being managed effectively? For sure. Um, so we, in our practice, uh, our clients have close to $2 billion in their portfolios. And over time, they've been able to put over $500 million uh, back in their communities. So if you think about that, it's it's roughly um, a quarter of the overall portfolio that they've been able to actually take out of the uh, the greater pot. And at the same time, that pod continues to grow for future generations and, and future projects. And Lisa gave some very good examples. Um, but just to echo that, we've you know been privileged enough to, to watch our clients uh, fund initiatives such as ending boil water advisories, uh, which shouldn't even be their responsibility, but they're they're taking ownership to, to you know fix fix the wrongs themselves and provide post-secondary education. Um, develop businesses in the 
communities to uh, to support members as well that want to become uh, entrepreneurs, um, as well as providing financial support, healthcare, mental health, and and lots of different infrastructure projects. And this is important because it shows that, you know, the magnitude of all the great things that you can do in the communities when these funds are managed effectively and they're sustainable for future use and they're, they're still able to benefit the communities today. And when I say managing effectively, um, just in terms of that, it's, it's really essential to have um, an independent advisor that's, that's a really valuable uh, part of the team especially when we work with trusts, uh, you'll have investment managers, lawyers, trustees, but having that independent vo- that voice to, to provide that objective opinion and provide the tools necessary to the trustees uh, so that they can make the most informed decisions. Everyone plays a part in this process, um, but when it all comes together, this is where we're, we're able to see uh, the most uh, good being done in these communities. Yeah, that's good, Kane. And I, you know, I think what I'm hearing too is the, um, you know, no two communities have the same needs. Um, There's no template solution, I don't think, for for what I've heard from you and Lisa. Um, And you know, there are, I'm sure it's it's not all black and white as far as the solution goes. Maybe Lisa, just to that extent, maybe you can just explain some of, you know, maybe some of the issues that create challenges in the in, in, in putting together these kind of solutions. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jack. So it's um, it's interesting when you think about it. It's hard to imagine uh, a situation that is is sort of more complex than this in the sense that this money is coming in and it's being it's meant to be shared across an entire community with so many individuals with you know unique needs at different stages of their life. We have uh, youth, we have elders, we have people that live on reserve, we have people that live off reserve. Um, so there's a real balancing act that has to happen. And one of the challenges that we often um, see up front and one of the key discussions that happens in the early stages is per capita distributions. So this is where a certain portion of a settlement might be allocated and set aside so that it can be distributed today to each of the individuals in the community. So, and this is always the balancing act is how large should that per capita distribution be? And of course, there's going to be a lot of different voices that come to the table. And, uh, you know, so we find that as a challenge that that each community or many communities have to work through. Um, so, so that's one of the challenges that we see up front. Um, and one of the more interesting challenges that I see too, that really strikes home to me is that we're often dealing with individuals that are willing to step forward as trustees, whether they be a representative of youth or of elders, um, of on-reserve or off-reserve or what have you, many of them have never had uh, formal training with regards to investments or financial issues. Many of them, you know, haven't even had a lot of experience, but but they're so willing and, you know, passionate and, and um, stepping up to take on this responsibility for their communities. And we've seen huge strides in terms of the learning curve uh, that these boards of trustees have have been able to, to to really achieve over such a short period of time. So it's really actually very inspiring. Well, that's it's interesting. And, and you know, the level of, um, you know, settlements and justifiably so for past wrongs is significant. And and, and maybe, Kane, I, how, how, you know, in the investment process that we've been kind of describing and uh, it's it's different than other segments, I guess, whether it's high net worth individuals or institutional foundations or otherwise. Do you want to maybe talk a bit about 
you know, how it's a bit different than a standard solution, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'll just highlight a, a few key differences uh, that I think are the most important. And the first would be that the money is often used to serve a broad range of primary needs or even basic necessities at times. So if you think of things like elder care, affordable housing, uh, education funding, health and mental health services, and even just public works or, or any kind of uh, routine maintenance that a municipality would, would provide. Um, so think of things like snow removal or road maintenance. So it's, it's doing a, a lot of basic things. And one of the other key differences is that the focus is always on the community and, and not the individual. And when I say community, I don't even mean existing community members. Uh, the focus is for existing community members, in addition to community members, sometimes even seven generations forward. So there's a lot of careful planning that needs to go into this. And when we approach any of these communities that we work with or prospects, uh, we always come in with that kind of lens and that mindset, knowing that we need to make sure that every beneficiary's voice is heard and everyone's interests are considered when we're formulating that that financial plan and, and that investment strategy. Um, so this is a bit different from a high net worth individual or even a large institution because just, just the sheer magnitude, it's focusing on a, a, a much larger member um, population. So hundreds, sometimes thousands of people, whereas a high net worth individual, they might have foundations that they want to support financially, but those might be targeted at a, a very specific goal. And this one is, is very broad, right? I mentioned all those primary needs. Uh, there's no specific thing that takes precedent over any of the others. And the last thing I'll say is that, you know, these funds have uh, the potential to make great strides in uh, closing the wealth gap if they're managed effectively. So that's that's something that you know we are uh, really proud um, to be a part of, and and that's really the goal and and what makes us excited to go to work every day is uh, you know realizing that if these things continue to be managed effectively, um, there's really you know. The, there's no uh, nothing stopping these communities um, from being able to develop their own economies, earn own source revenues, and communities don't enjoy having to you know rely on government support because there's always a chance that there's going to be cuts to the funding amounts or these funding amounts could simply stop. So it's uh, it's rewarding being able to to watch uh, mm. these generate all the, these own source revenues. That's so true, Kane, and. You know, the reality is that the Indigenous economy is the Canadian economy. And I'm going to quote a couple of statistics here. There was a, a study done in 2016 by the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business, and they referenced um, a national household survey that, that discovered that there are more than 43,000 First Nations, Inuit, and Métis in Canada who are business owners. And, and further, the number of Aboriginal business owners and entrepreneurs is growing at five times the rate of self-employed Canadians overall. And these Aboriginal businesses, they're diverse, they're not limited to any one region, to any you know, individual sector or market. So you know, there's so much 
here that that needs to be supported and encouraged. And we think, you know, these settlement assets can play a role in that. Um, and further, another institute, the Indigenomics Institute, and this group, um, they're a research, education, and engagement platform for supporting and rebuilding design of Indigenous economies, not just in Canada, but worldwide. And what they're looking to, to, what they focus on is how do we realize the potential and facilitate the growth of the Indigenous economy from its current value, which is about $32 billion, to $100 billion in five years. And that's their goal. And we know that our society has great need to support and, and really elevate the diverse voices, the strengths, the unique approaches of Indigenous people so that we can truly benefit in the Canadian economy from our, our diversity. You know, that's a good good addition to, to Kane's chat, Lisa. Thank you. Uh, you know, I guess maybe, Kane, I'll come back to you again. Just, you know, many people across the country, you know, here in the news, the, uh, truth and reconciliation. What can people who are not of Indigenous background do relative to reconciliation to build an understanding and support of the Indigenous economy? You know, give us some thoughts on that. For sure. Um, so I think probably the, the first thing that needs to be said is uh, maybe what not to do. Um, and I, I think that would be assuming that an Indigenous person has all the answers or an Indigenous person wants to be um, the one that you go to with their questions. Uh, so it's really important to, you know, take ownership of your own learning and, and you know, do the research on your own without assuming that, uh, you know, it's, it's not the Indigenous person's responsibility to help teach you. Um, but that being said, um, we have prepared some suggestions as a good starting place uh, just to try and familiarize yourself with um, all the efforts that, that are uh, currently underway with reconciliation. And, and the first um, is definitely to read the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. And, you know, this report addresses the history and the impact on survivors and their families um, of Canada's residential school system. And there's 94 total calls to action, but it's it's actually a pretty manageable read. It's it's fairly short, and the calls to action provide a path for government and Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities to move forwards together towards a path um, for reconciliation. Right, and it addresses a lot of wide-ranging issues from child welfare to the education and employment gap. Um, but for purposes of this discussion. I think it makes sense to call out uh, call to action number 92, um, which is really important for the business community. And call to action number 92 calls on corporate Canada to adopt the United Nations uh, Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples as a framework for reconciliation. And it discusses uh, how important it is to recruit and promote Indigenous talent, how to work with Indigenous businesses. So if you have um, maybe one supplier and you're looking at diversifying your supply chain, it's no longer a nice thing to do to, you know, try and diversify. And, and um, it's, it's, uh, it's more important now. It's become not just a nice thing to do, um, but something that you need to do. And there's been lots of research to support that it has a positive effect on a company's bottom line um, by doing these things. And, it also discusses uh, how important it is to, to build relationships in these communities. So that would definitely be a starting point. Uh, some other resources would be um, the Indigenous Culture course, which is uh, a free course that you can enroll in through the University of Alberta. 
and you could donate to charities such as Inspire, um, which uh, you know sponsors Indigenous youth to uh, to attend uh, post-secondary school. So it, it provides bursaries and grants, and the Gort Downey and Chani One Jack Fund, which also provides a lot of uh, educational resources um, and works towards a uh, a path for reconciliation. Well, that's great, Kane. Thank you. And I'm going to come back to you with one more question, Kane, and just really. In closing, and in spirit of this episode, Kane, what don't they tell you about building sustainable wealth for Indigenous communities? I think what they don't tell you is that how complex um, the planning needs to be. Uh, and, you know, Lisa already said it, that there are definitely similarities between communities, but no two communities are the same. So it requires a lot of careful and complex planning. And probably the most interesting thing that they don't tell you is these funds are meant to last uh, generations, right? If not forever. Um, so it's not just, you know, planning for the needs of today. We, we need to be able to balance those needs um, without encroaching on uh, the future generations and their ability to, uh, to meet their needs as well. Well, thank you. And um, in closing, I, I, on behalf of Lisa Kane and myself, um, we do want to thank you very much for joining us for today's episode. And, uh, and of course, uh, should you have any further questions, don't hesitate to reach out. And, and again, thank you so much for joining us and hope it was of some inf inf good information and uh, an update. So thank you again. And, uh, stay well. Stay well.